Today's scripture is from uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your, parent, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of God. Morning, everyone. Peter is the only other Lakers fan I know here, other than me. If there's any others of you, we should fellowship. The rest of you, we'll, we'll pray for the rest of you. I want to encourage you once again to, to register for the spring, uh, for the summer uh, retreat. If you haven't already, please do. I think it's going to be a great time. Invite friends to it as well. If you can't come on the Saturday, Sunday at least, invite your friends to. Um, it's going to be a wonderful time, and I think what we're going to be learning about over the course of that, and fellowshipping over over the course of that weekend, is going to tie in somewhat with what we're looking at from God's Word today as well. Also, I want to remind you about the summer seminars that we're doing um, starting at the end of this month. I want to encourage you to register for that, and you might ask, well, where do I register? And I would tell you, well, there's nowhere to register yet, but this week we'll have a registration page up for you so that you can go sign up for that class, for that seminar on family ministry. Again, we'll talk a little bit more about that later, but it's going to tie in quite a bit with what we're talking about today from the book of Ephesians. If you're visiting with us here, if you're, if you're, if you're a guest, I want to welcome you again. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to let you know that we have been walking through the book of Ephesians, this letter to a church that was written in the first century, and it was written to a church or possibly churches that existed in what is now modern-day Turkey at that time. Um, not Turkey, but referred to as Asia Minor. And we're basically at the end of this letter. We're in the last chapter. It's been maybe a long road. But I want us to take a step back and look at where we've been for just a moment because I think that sometimes when you're working through a book of the Bible, as we like to do, kind of go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, sometimes it's easy to kind of miss the forest for the trees. You get so caught up in the details of minutia of the passage you're looking at on a given day that you lose sight of what the big picture of this letter is. And this letter was, in fact, written to churches to be read publicly. So someone would have stood up and read from chapter 1 through chapter 6 in one sitting and maybe done that repeatedly. So where have we been so far in this letter. Well, here's what we've seen. We've seen that if you are a Christian, that is, if you have placed your faith, faith for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life in Jesus Christ, then, then, God has adopted you as children. You are a child of God. You have a new identity that's been given to you by God. You've been forgiven of your sins. Not only that, but Jesus Christ, because of what God has done, has full ownership over you. He is not just your Savior, but he is your King. We've also seen that because all that is true also, God has given you his Holy Spirit who dwells in you. So God is your Father. Jesus Christ stands as owner, King over you. And God's Spirit himself dwells in you. And I said, all of this starts with you putting your faith in Jesus. And that's true in a sense. But really, there's a start before that start. Because what we find out in the book of Ephesians is that all of this, all of that truth was initiated by God in eternity. He chose, if you are a Christian today, it's because he chose to adopt you as his children. It's because he moved towards you to forgive you. He willingly and sovereignly gave you a new identity in Jesus. He sent his spirit to dwell in you. What we've been, we saw that in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians. What we've seen since then if, is, that, is this. If all that is true, if all that is true of you, then how should you live? How should we live? How should we live in light of all that? And one of the things we've seen very recently is that if all this is true, if God has done all that for you, then this is how we should live. We should live submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There's a reason that I wanted to backtrack and kind of, kind of give you a little bit of a summary of what we've seen in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Because, like I said, I don't want us to miss the forest for the trees. 
but also because I want us to get it very, very clear in our heads that the Christian life begins with God moving toward us and us responding in faith to him. That's how the Christian life begins. All the instructions that we find in the book of Ephesians, and there are lots of instructions in here about how we should live, how we should relate to one another, how we should conduct ourselves. All of those are very important instructions, but that's not where the Christian life begins. It begins by God moving, initiating a relationship with us, us responding in faith. All those instructions on how we should live, they just follow. They just follow. If we get it backwards, then we've missed the whole Christian message. If you or I think that the Christian life is about me behaving a certain way, keeping certain rules, living in a certain prescribed manner, that that's what the Christian life is all about, and that's where it starts, then we've missed the whole message. It starts with God. It starts with a God who moves toward us in love. And we sang about this earlier. Loved us in such a way that he was willing to send his son to die for us. So that by believing in his son and his son's death in our place, we are given all those things that I listed before. Forgiveness. A new identity. The Holy Spirit indwelling us. A relationship to God as his children. It all starts with him. But we must respond to all that, and here's how we respond. Once we are believers in Christ, we must live a certain way, and like I said, that involves submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what we saw last week is that God, that God tells us in Ephesians, he takes this, this general rule for us to submit to one another, and he starts to apply it in some very specific ways. He says, here's how you're going to do it within a marriage. Here's what submitting to one another looks like in a marriage. Today, he's going to show us what that looks like within a parent-child relationship. So I want, I want to start off by, by, by speaking about what God calls us to if we are children. If you are a child here, this is what God calls you to. If you are a young person, this is what God calls you to. And in some sense, if we are children, in a sense, if we have parents, then God calls us all to this in some way. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians ch uh, chapter 6, verse 1, he calls children to obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And, and before we even move on, I want to just point out something that may, we may miss this, because it doesn't seem too remarkable to us. The Apostle Paul is addressing children directly here, and that's actually important. It's radical, because it's not something that would happen normally in that culture. Children were valued to a degree, but not valued in the same way that we might value our children. Children did not have all the rights that adults had, Children were, were seldom addressed in public, in a public letter to the whole congregation. What, what's happening here? God is telling us something, that in this very congregation here, children are valued. Youth are valued. He speaks to you directly. He doesn't just speak to your parents. He speaks to you in his word. And he says, obey your parents. And something that I think is often missed when we read this, that it seems the assumption here is that the Apostle Paul is speaking to Christian children. That is, he's speaking to children who have believed in Jesus Christ. Because he says to them, obey your parents in the Lord. It seems he's saying to children, if all that happened in verse, and all that I've covered in verse chapters 1 through 3 of this book is true of you, then live this out by obeying your parents in the Lord. Now, if you're a child, then you might say, well, I don't know if I'm a Christian. I don't know if I've really put my faith in Jesus. And maybe as a parent, you look at your kids, and you're like, I don't know where my kids stand. I don't know if they've actually still, if they've believed in Jesus yet, really, for the forgiveness of their sins. Then this call still applies. The call to you as children, whether or not you are Christians, is to obey your parents in the Lord. For some of you, maybe it'll be an overflow of the love you already have for Jesus. For some of you, it may not be, but it'll help you to learn what it looks like to love Jesus as you obey your parents. It'll help you to learn what it looks like to submit and follow Jesus as you submit and follow your parents. Obedience to parents matters to God. It's unescapable. In fact, in, in Colossians 3, 20, it's a passage very similar to this one, Ephesians 6, 1. God says again to, to children, 
Obey your parents. There he says, obey your parents in everything, for this is pleasing to God. God cares about children obeying their parents. And really, if you read the Old Testament, it's obvious. Because in the Old Testament, we find out that the penalty for disrespecting your parents was death. The death penalty children would face for dishonoring, disrespecting, flagrantly rebelling against their children. Obedience to parents was no joke in the Old Testament. And and that was God's real law for real people. It's not God's law for us. He has not told us to do that. If you're a parent, I'm not saying you should... I'm not saying you should take out your kids the next time they disrespect you. If that were true, then I'd, I'd be in prison right now, I think. Because my, parent, my kids have disrespected me plenty of times. In fact, I was thinking about this earlier this week. I thought, if, if God really called me to take out my kids if they disrespected me, then I'd be in prison. And I thought, no, I wouldn't. I'd never have kids in the first place because all the times I disrespected my dad, he would have taken me out a long time ago. God's not calling us to do that. But the point is this, God cares about the way we relate to our parents. The New Testament bears this out. It's interesting. There there are in a couple of places in the New Testament, there are these long lists of sins, terrible sins. Like, for instance, in Romans 1, Paul there is describing people who have rejected God, people who have said, you will not be my king, Lord. I will live as I want. I will call the shots in my life. And what do those people look like? He describes them. He says they are filled with a manner of unri- all manner of unrighteousness. They are evil. They are covetous. They, they are filled with malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers. They are haters of God. They are insolent. They are haughty. They are boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. You hear how... Some of those sins sound terrible. There's murder in there. There's all kinds of evil. Right in the middle, it's disobedient to parents. God takes us seriously, doesn't he? He looks at our nation, and he looks at all the sins. Maybe there are sins that we find so tragic, we lament them, we cry over them, and we should. God looks at us, and he does the same. But he identifies some things as tragic and awful that maybe we glance over, and we don't even notice that they're that bad. God looks at the disobedience of us towards our parents and disobedience of our children toward us and says, that's awful. It's lamentable. It's a sign that we're under a curse and that things are broken in this world. 2 Timothy 3 does the same thing. It lists a bunch of sins, and right in the middle of them, after lovers of money and proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient to parents and ungrateful, and unholy, and heartless, etc., etc., etc. God came into this world as a man to rescue us from our sins. The sins that we look at and we find despicable and lamentable and disgusting, and the sins that we kind of think are no big deal. He came to save us and to rescue us and to pay for our disobedience to our parents. Because he takes it seriously. Obedience to parents, is, it's, a, it's a form of honoring God. Notice, notice that, that's what, what Paul's really getting at here when he says, obey your parents in the Lord. You see, we're called, children, you're called to obey your parents as an act of obedience to Jesus. In the same way that we're called to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, not ultimately out of reverence for one another, same thing. Obey your parents because you love Jesus. Obey your parents because Jesus is king. Obey your parents because Jesus loved you and died for you and now reigns over you as a shepherd. Obedience to parents is meant to be submission to God. We can't miss that. If we miss that, then we're going to, parents, we're going to be requiring obedience for our children, but it's not going to make sense. They're not going to understand why they're called to obey us. And we're going to, be a, we're going to do a, a really terrible job of demanding obedience of them. If we don't get this straight, obedience to you as a parent is meant to be submission to Christ. It's Christ-centered. That's why the, the, the title of the sermon is Christ-Centered Parents and Christ-Centered Kids. Because what Paul is talking about here is all about the reign and rule of Jesus. He's the one who ultimately deserves our full obedience. And this means that obedience 
what Paul is talking about here is not just compliance. It's not just an outward, yeah, I'll do what you tell me. It's not that. What God is after is the heart. It's what he's always after, isn't it? When God calls you to obey him, what is he after? He's after the affections of your heart. He wants you to willingly love him, trust him, and follow him, not begrudgingly comply with his rules and his demands, even though you think they're ridiculous and you hate it every step of the way. Obedience isn't just compliance. God is after our hearts and he's after the hearts of our kids. He wants to reign as king, not, he wants to reign as king over hearts, our affections, our desires. I, I brought this little booklet up here that we have some copies of it, I think in the back and maybe back here as well, and I encourage you to grab one if you want to, if you're, if you're a parent if, or if you're a kid, you want to grab one. It's called Who Will Be King, and it, it's a gospel booklet. It kind of lays out the gospel very clearly, but it does so in an interesting way. It talks about a God who is king, who created a people, but his people rejected him and rebelled against him and said, you will not rule over us. And as a result, those people fell under a curse, a curse that we experience even now today. But God, in mercy and in love, sends his son, the rightful heir of his throne, he sends his son to die in the place of those people who rejected him. And then he calls us to believe in that son and to submit to that son as king and find forgiveness and find reconciliation with God. Who will be king? It asks the question of children and asks the question of us as adults too. Who do you want to be king over your life? Do you want to be king? Do you want to constantly rule over yourself? You call the shots, you do what you want. Or, or, will you look to God, the rightful king, and say, I will serve you. I am yours. I was made, not only was I made by you, I was made for you. We read through this with our kids so many times as they were, as they were when they were younger especially, and I remember reading through, especially with, our, with who was our youngest at the time, Marcos, who was, who's now six, but I remember reading through it with him and not knowing really if it's even getting through, you know? Until one day, I remember at four years old, we were, he had done something wrong. I don't remember what it was. It probably involved some act of violence towards a sibling. And I, and I asked him, Marcos, why did you do that? Which is probably not a great question, and I fully expected him to say what kids usually say. I don't know. I said, why did you do that? And he goes through tears. He says, I wanted to be my own king. He says, I wanted to be my own king. And at that moment, my heart melted because I, I can so relate to that. Because I want the same thing. And so together, he and I were able to look to the true king. Seek forgiveness from him and worship him, and stop trying to follow and worship ourselves. Obey your parents in the Lord means love Christ so much that it overflows in obedience to the parents that God has given you, to those parents that Christ has placed over you. It's an overflow of love and devotion and loyalty toward God. And you can see this even in the Old Testament. If you look at the Ten Commandments, for instance, the first commandment tells us what? It tells us that there's only one God and that we should have no other gods before him. We should worship nothing else and no one else except for God. And then when he comes down to commandment number five, God says, honor your father and mother. Why are they, why are they, they ordered that way? Because we can only really honor our father and mother when we worship God as supreme. And when we worship God as supreme, then the overflow from that, the natural outworking of that is going to be honoring father and mother. And that's the way it is with all God's instructions. They all flow out of that first command. You will have no other God before me. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first commandment. Everything else comes from it. Honor your parents comes from it. So compliance, outward compliance, it's necessary. 
I think we should require it. I think we should require that our children actually do what we ask them to do and do it in a timely way and do it in a, in a, in a willing way. Absolutely. But we want to go further than that, don't we? If God wants our hearts, then what should we want for our children? We should want their hearts. Of course, honoring children may look different in different cultures. In Proverbs 31, 28, it says, it says this. It says, uh, it's, it says, describing this woman who's a mother, it says her children rise up to bless her. And it's speaking to them honoring her. And it's also speaking to a tradition in that culture. Children would get up. They'd rise up when their mom would walk into the room. Now, I don't think that's a tradition or a cultural characteristic that we live out in our lives, but there are other ways that we do it in our lives. Maybe if you come from the South, maybe you grew up calling your mom, yes, ma'am, and maybe you responded to your dad as, yes, sir. If you grew up in different fam, different cultures, maybe you use certain honorific endings and words to refer to your parents. You speak to them in a particular way because they're your parents, that sort of thing. In my family, we ask our kids and we... we, we continually remind them to respond to us as, you know, yes, mom, yes, dad, rather than, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, uh-uh, uh, you know, yes, mom, yes, dad, that sort of thing. But that's really not the essence of what Paul's getting at. Because, again, those are just cultural details, and they're going to vary from place to place. And Paul isn't telling us to adopt a particular set of cultural practices, although those can be healthy and they can be good. Again, he's after the heart. So honoring the very least, honoring your parents' kids, it looks like listening and giving ear to them, considering their words for you closely. Listen to what Proverbs 1.8 says. It says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. Father and mother's teaching. Listen, this is Proverbs 23, 22. It says, Listen to your father who gave you life, And do not despise your mother when she is old. You're young, she's old. Listen to her. Consider her words. Give attention to them. It means respecting them. And of course, honoring your parents is going to look different as you get older. Maybe some of us, we struggle with that. What does it look like to honor my parents once I'm out of elementary school? I'm out of middle school, I'm out of high school, now I don't even live with them anymore. I have my own life. I have my own family. How does, what does honoring them look like? It's going to change. It's going to change. Certainly. I don't think we obey or honor our parents in the same way at 42 that we did at 12. And yet, there's still a call here to honor. I have a friend who grew up in a, in a culture where honoring parents was highly prized. And honoring parents for him growing up usually looked like do what they tell you. And as an adult... In his late 20s, he met a woman that he hoped to one day marry. His parents were very opposed to this marriage. And so he wanted to know why, and they expressed to him why. And he was not convinced that their reasons were legitimate reasons. It, wasn't, it, was, it was basically they didn't like her because she was, she was of a different ethnicity than they were. They didn't want her because she didn't look like them, she didn't come from the same kind of family, she didn't eat the same food, she didn't speak the same language. And they said, we don't approve of this. And this brother, who's a, a very close friend, was struggling to know what it looks like to honor his parents in this situation. Do I simply do what they say and break off this relationship? Would that really be honoring to them? And I didn't think so. And he ultimately was convinced that that was not what honoring his parents looked like. Honoring his parents instead looked this way. He told his parents, I want to give you some time to think over this. And I'm going to take some time to pray for you and think over this too. And he did that. And he prayed for them. And he continued his relationship, his friendship with this woman. But he gave them some time to think, to pray, to consider. And then after some, pr- some prayer and time, he came back and he initiated a series of conversations with his parents in which he told them why. He asked them for more reasons why he, they thought he shouldn't marry this woman. And he shared with them reasons why he thought that they were wrong. He took them to, the Ephesians, to Ephesians, ironically. And he says, this woman is a believer in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for her, just like she died for us. And this same Jesus Christ has abolished the dividing wall that exists between Asian and non-Asian. I didn't mean to get specific, but that's that's the case, right? There. And, And because that dividing wall has been abolished, we are brother and sister. 
If I marry her, I'll be marrying her in the Lord, and we'll raise children in the Lord. And this is glorious. This is awesome. This is a picture of gospel reconciliation. And they said, we need a little more time to think about this. And so he gave them some more time, and eventually, eventually, they came to him, and they said, we were wrong. We were wrong. They identified idols in their lives. They said, for some reason, our ethnicity and our identity culturally was prioritized over our identity in Christ and over this woman's identity in Christ. They repented. They said, no, we're not going to get in the way of this. We're going to celebrate it. Now they love their daughter-in-law and they love their little grandson that came from that beautiful union. Honoring his parents meant confronting them in their idolatry. Patiently, lovingly, prayerfully, waiting upon God to bring change. That's what honoring looked like for him. What does honoring your parents look like for you if you're an adult? God says, obey your parents in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, this is the first commandment with a promise. And what is that promise? Look at the promise that comes, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. It's a quote from the Old Testament, from the Ten Commandments. I think it's true that if children obey their parents, there's a a temporal kind of goodness that comes. Things go better when you obey mom and dad. Even those of us who are a little older can remember that. The things used to go better for us when we obeyed mom and dad, hopefully. But God is pointing to a more eternal truth here. If we're submitting to our parents, children, if you're submitting to your parents as an act of submission to Christ, then it will go well with you. Not just in the here and now, because mom and dad are going to be happy with you. No, if your obedience to to, to mom and dad is really an outworking of your obedience to Jesus, then what you're going to receive in return for that is eternal life, eternal blessedness. It will go well with you, not just in the short term, but in the long term. And I think it's helpful sometimes to remind our kids of that. I try to remind my kids sometimes of that when things don't go so well because there's been disobedience or because there's been rebellion or some kind of, oh, some, something bad's happened. I'll say, you know, did, did things really go well for you here? Do you feel like this ended well? And normally they're like, no, this didn't end so well. And so we try to go back and we say, what, what, what decisions could we have made so that things ended better here? And it usually ends with them being more honoring and, and, and willing to obey and listen. Let's talk to parents as well. That's the first part of this passage. It says, kids, obey your parents in the Lord. What does God say to parents here? This is very balanced. He doesn't just focus on the kids. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He addresses fathers here directly, but we can take this to mean fathers and mothers. Because if you remember those passages I read from Proverbs, tell children to listen to the instruction of their mother and their father, to to heed the words of both parents. And this is true here as well. Fathers are just being identified because they're in a headship role. If you don't want to know what that means, you can listen to the passage from last week, the sermon from last week, where fathers are identified as, as being head over the household. And so there's a sense in which fathers and mothers must be respected and obeyed and listened to. But dad, you've got final responsibility and accountability for what's going on in your household. But it's mother and father building a home together, ideally. And in homes where there's only a mother, then this still works out. And in homes where there's only a father, this still works out. I think one, one kind of quick just takeaway from this is if, if parents, if your children are called to obey and honor both of you parents, then we, can, we should help, you should help your children to honor both of you. That is, rather than undermining the way that our kids view our spouse, we should be reinforcing and helping them to respect and honor our spouse, calling them to respect and honor our spouse. That looks like me reminding my kids that mom must be loved and respected because she loves them and she's an authority over them by God placed in that position. The same thing goes the other way. Raise them in the, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, God says. That's a big call. That's serious. It's simple. It's just a sentence. But if you're a parent, maybe you feel the weight of that. In that one sentence, there is huge responsibility. Oh, all you have to do is raise your kids in the 
discipline instruction of the Lord. Simple, right? And it's lifelong effort. And it's hard. You know, this word for, for discipline here, sometimes it's translated as training. And, in, and in, 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 first century, in the first century world, the Greco-Roman world, this word training or discipline was used to talk about lots of things. Parents were called to train their kids to read and write. Do you do that? Maybe you train your kids to read and write. A lot of parents in that Greco-Roman world would have trained their kids to, to wrestle. Maybe you train your kids to wrestle or grapple or something like that. Or maybe you train them in some other sport. Parents at that time, that day of time, would have often trained their children to play an instrument. They would train them musically to play a lyre, harp. Nowadays, maybe it's piano. Maybe it's a violin. But maybe as parents, we're already doing that stuff. God is saying, yes, that's what you're called to do. Train your kids in those basic skills. Some of them are more important than others. But here's one that you cannot forget. Train your kids. Train your kids in the Lord. We're already training our kids one way or the other. We're all doing that. Even if, if it's training that we've delegated to school systems, Sunday school teachers, um, coaches, tutors, we've delegated some of that training, which is fine, but ultimately we are responsible for training our kids in the Lord. I know God wants my kids to read and write, and if my kids can't read and write, then I've failed. But the Lord doesn't tell me to teach them to read and write, I just know he wants me to. When he tells me what to do with my children, the one thing he prioritizes, the one thing he highlights is, bring them up in the training and discipline of God. It's something that he reiterates throughout the Bible Of the Lord. This means that my goal is not to train my kids to do my will ultimately. Train them to know what I want, train them to understand my expectations and fulfill those expectations constantly. That's not, it's not training in Rob, it's training in the Lord. It goes back to what God says in Deuteronomy 6 where he gives his people his law. He tells them how they should live as his people and then he says to, to, to his people, Pass this on to your children. Do it diligently. Show them diligently what it looks like and teach them diligently what it looks like to know God and love him and to follow him. That's the one job we've been given, the top job we've been given as parents. So, should we require obedience and submission towards our, from our children? Yeah, absolutely. But as we do that, we should be constantly pointing them to the fact that their obedience and submission to us is meant to be an outworking of Obedience and submission to the one who made them. Discipline, this word that Paul uses, of course, has different shades of meaning. In the Bible, it's used to talk not only about training, it's used to talk about reproof. The Bible sometimes uses the word the rod of reproof. It means when God comes and he uses hard, difficult, painful methods and circumstances in order to train us. Has God done that in your life? Has he used difficult, hard, painful circumstances to teach you? To teach you to trust him, to obey him, to love him more? And God calls us to do the same. In Hebrews 12, God says, I discipline you because you're my children. If I didn't discipline you, it would mean that I'm not your father. It would mean that I hate you. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. When God disciplines us, he's just treating us as sons and daughters. In Hebrews 12, God says, For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? It's assumed we're going to train our kids. We're going to discipline them. Sometimes in hard ways. Reproving them correcting them, making them see and, and, and feel and understand the repercussion for foolish and sinful actions. God does that for us. And he calls us to discipline our kids in the way that he disciplines us. The way we parent our children is meant to reflect the way he parents us. As God disciplines his children, he never stops loving them, does he? He never distances himself from them and says, you're not mine anymore. I'm ashamed to even know you. No. He disciplines us from up close. 
He draws near to us. He doesn't leave us. And so in the same way, we're called to discipline our kids lovingly, not rejecting them, but as an act of love. Of course, God disciplines us perfectly, doesn't he? And we're not going to do that. If you have disciplined your children perfectly, and I'd love to talk to you and find out how you do that. And we've all seen discipline go wrong as well. Maybe you were the recipient of abusive or horrible discipline growing up. But I guess what I can say to you is this, that the response to bad discipline is never no discipline. The response to bad discipline is good discipline, godly discipline, loving reproof. That's what God wants for us and for our families. So, in the time that remains, I want to give us just, just I want to give you a couple of ways that I believe this can, this can play itself out in our parenting. If you're a parent, or if you're a future parent, or if you've got kids in your life that are someone else's kids, but you're called in some way to provide some kind of training and, and help in raising them. How do we parent like God does? Now, this is just very basic. I'm just going to run through a couple of things here. If you, there's, there's, we're going to be covering more of this stuff in our summer seminar. There may even be more that we cover in our, in our summer retreat. It's possible there as well. But here are some ways that I believe we can parent our kids the way God parents us. One, God seeks our ultimate good, and he does not always give us what we want. This is obvious, right? When God comes in, in Ephesians 6 and he says, do not provoke your children to anger, what is he saying there? He's not saying, don't ever upset your kids. He's not saying, don't ever frustrate their desires. Does God ever frustrate our desires? <laughs> yeah, he does. Does the way that he treats us sometimes upset us because we don't like the way things are going? No doubt. And yet, what God is saying here when he says, don't provoke your children to anger, he's saying, don't treat them unjustly. He's saying, seek their ultimate good. Don't treat them unlovingly. Don't let your sin get in the way of the way you're raising them. Don't pour out your sin on them and thus provoke them, to exasperate them, some other translations say. If we want a parent like God, then we will require of them what we know is best for them. And, and, and you know what is of ultimate good for your children. It's to know Christ. And so that means that we're going to point our kids to Jesus. What do you want most of all for your kids? What do you desire most of all? There's so many things that we can give them, but the one thing they need most, forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ, we can't give them that. But what can we do? We can point them to the one who can give them that, and we can seek to model the one who can give them that, and we can remind them that they need forgiveness and they need eternal life and keep pointing them to Jesus. You and I are constantly communicating to our kids what matters most to us. I find sometimes that I don't even realize I'm doing that, but I am. We were on vacation not too long ago, and, and my kids were getting ready in the morning. And, and I think, I think at the time, this makes the story even worse, but I think at the time they may have been reading their Bibles in the morning. And we were running, we were running late. And I was starting to get frustrated and I'm like, guys, hurry up. We need to get out of here. Breakfast downstairs. At the, we're staying in a hotel. They're going to stop serving breakfast soon. We're going to miss the bus. We've got to hurry up. Let's go. And people complied. The kids like, kind of complied. And then afterwards, I'm thinking, what did I just communicate to them? I communicated to them that the priority, the top priority for me right now is not their good. It was certainly not the truth that they were reading in their Bibles. Top priority was me getting what I wanted. Top priority for me was staying on schedule, getting out of this hotel room so we could go have some fun right now. That's what I cared about. And I had to go back to them and say, kids, this is, this is evil. What I've just done is, is it's wicked. It's the opposite of the gospel. Thankfully, my kids were willing to forgive me. Two, God requires obedience, so we should too. 
We kind of covered this before, but God requires obedience. So I want, to, I want to encourage all of us this way, because this is hard. This is a hard road to walk. The fact is that sometimes through our negligence and through our passivity, we may very well be encouraging our kids to disobey. Have you ever noticed that you might do this? So when we require obedience a little bit, but then we don't follow up, and they don't obey, and they just go do what they want, we tell them not to do something, they do it anyway, and we don't do anything about it. Or we tell them to do something, they don't do it, and then we just like passively forget about it. What happens when that happens over and over and over and over again? What are we training them in? I believe we're training them to ignore what we ask them to do or not do. Or, most of us are probably in this camp, we're just inconsistent with it. So sometimes we follow up and we make sure that they do what we ask them to, but sometimes we don't follow up. Sometimes there's discipline when they disobey, sometimes there's not. So we're, we're kind of inconsistent, and I know that we live in a busy world, and we're busy people, and that's bound to happen. But if it happens consistently, that, if that inconsistency is a constant pattern, then what are we teaching our kids? What are we training them up in? I think, I'm, I, I think of it this way. I'm training my kids to gamble. I'm training them to basically say, hmm, does he really mean it this time? And they'll, they'll gamble. And they're pretty good at gambling. They're pretty good at calculating the odds of whether or not I'm going to follow through and really I'm going to make them do what I ask them to do or if I'm just going to forget about it. I don't think we want that for our kids. I certainly don't. So let's require obedience. Let's repeat ourselves as we need to, but repeat ourselves in such a way that we're reminding our kids, listen, I'm repeating myself because you're not listening, but I shouldn't have to do this. This isn't the way it should be. God repeats himself with us doesn't he? He tells us the same thing over and over again, but he tells us again and again, listen, listen to me. You should have listened the first time. What I want for you is good. What I want for you is actually for your flourishing and your blessing. I've done it. I've trained my kids at times to gamble. Perhaps, I, you, perhaps sometimes I think I've trained my kids, maybe you've done this, Train your kids to wait for a better offer. Do you know how we do this? You do this by bribing your children. You do this by telling them, if you obey me, you will get this. God never does that with us, by the way. That is antithetical to the way that God parents his children. He never says to us, he never says to us, do this, and we disobey. Do this, we disobey. Okay, I'll give you this if you do this. He never, find one place in the Bible where he does that with us. Never. What are we training our kids to do when we bribe them? We tell them, listen, um, you need to clean that room. He's thinking, hmm, I could clean my, this is my son thinking, I could clean my room now, but if he comes back with a better offer later, I might as well wait, right? I might get something out of this. So we train our kids to do that. I don't think that's what we want. It's certainly not a characteristic we want to see flourish in our kids' lives, right? So I want to encourage you, avoid that. That's not how God parents us. And and here's the irony of it. When we deal with our children in those unbiblical, ungodly ways, we are actually provoking them to anger. We don't think so, but we are. Because there's an inconsistency built into it. There's an ungodliness built into it. We're not loving them the way that God loves us. And so the long-term effect of that is going to be building up bitterness and confusion and even anger in them. So, require obedience, but again, go for the heart. Let's try to get our kids to understand that what we want for them is best. Let's remind them, like God reminds us, look, when you obey, things will go well for you. Let's remind them of that gospel truth. A couple more and I'll stop. One, one more, th- um, a couple more, three. God knows us and he disciplines us accordingly. He knows us. He knows us. We, unlike God, are not omniscient. We don't look at our kids and understand them completely. Some of us have known our kids for a long time. We still don't understand them. With my daughter especially, I struggled so much because I felt like with my boys at least, they, they, I could relate. I understood their thinking patterns. I understand their thought patterns. With my daughter, I was, with Noah, I was always kind of confused. I'm like, why does she care about this? I don't, I don't get it. Why is this making her cry? What's wrong? I don't get this. And it was only after years of Delimar reminding, my wife reminding me again and again, you need to seek to understand her. Try to understand the way she thinks. And it was only after I got, this was pointed out, and I think Delimar was the one who said to me, she says, this is the gospel right here. How, how unlike God are you? 
And yet God comes to you and he understands you and he sympathizes with you and he's willing to put himself in your shoes. Can't you do that with your daughter? I said, yeah, I guess so. I complied. Eventually my heart wanted to do that. Get to know them. Because what might be helpful for one child, of course, can be terribly destructive for another child. Words of reproof that could help one child could be really painful for another. At other times, words that might be terribly ineffective with one child, with another child, can just lead to all kinds of great things. Number four, God always speaks truth to us. God never lies to us. Maybe this is an obvious thing, but I want to encourage you to speak truth to your kids. And I want you to encourage me to always speak truth to my kids. God does not delineate between um, little lies and big lies. He tells us to, he tells us truth is, is, is uh, there's, there's a sanctity to truth. He never lies to us, not in small things or big things. And I believe he calls us to do the same with our children. Of course, when we speak truth to our children, what are we training them in? We're training them, we're saying, look, this is how God is. This is, this is a picture of how God behaves. I'm not a perfect picture of it by any stretch, but God speaks truth to us, I'm going to speak truth to you. We can trust God, you can trust me. That's training in the Lord. The opposite of that is when we lie to our children and they find that they can't trust us. And they find that in little things that we said, we just, we just break our word. And You know, some of you, you know that at a very early age, we start to make connections between that and who God is. And we start to say, if this person who's been placed in my life to, to guide me and to speak truth to me and protect me, if I can't trust them, then how can I trust this God that they're always telling me about? And look at it closely. Why do we lie to our kids? Why have you, if you've lied to your kids, why? Usually it's because there's some, you just want them to stop bothering you or you just want them to comply. It's like bribery and lying together. You just want them to do something, so you just say something you have no intention of doing. You know how it goes. It's for your own comfort, but it's not training them in the Lord. Lastly, lastly, God encourages his children and he delights in them. He encourages them and delights in them. And I want to encourage us to do the same with our kids. Earlier in Ephesians 4, we read about how God calls us as people, as a church, to speak words that build each other up, not words that tear each other down. I will confess to you that I am more prone to obey that with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and my peers, than I am with my children sometimes. Because if I speak words to you that cut you down or that offend you, you're likely to call me out on it, aren't you? Rightfully so. Eventually you're going to say, why is this guy even pastor of this church if he can't even speak words that build me up? He's always cutting me down, always offending me, always... Sometimes I think that we hold ourselves to one standard with our peers and with people who are superiors in the workplace, etc. And then with our kids, we speak words that shame them or that hurt them or that cut them down or manipulate them. Is it possible that you've done that? Maybe in a, in your desire, maybe your end desire is good. You want this child to, to grow up. You want them to stop making foolish mistakes. You want them to change in some way. And so what do you do? You, you shame them. So what's the matter with you? Why can't you be like this kid? How many times do I have to tell you this? And, and we're belittling them and we're making them feel smaller and smaller. God does not do that to us. Instead, he confronts us with the truth of our sin, but he encourages us as well. And he says, I am on your side. I am with you. I am pleased with you. The same God who said to his, about his son, Jesus Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased I believe that the same God says of his people who are in Christ, these are my beloved children. I'm well pleased in them. And so we should go to our children and say, you're my beloved child. I'm well pleased in you. Let me tell you about another father, this God, this God, who's willing to love you more than I've ever loved you, who has words of encouragement for you and healing for you that I can't muster up. Guys, um, Parenting is no joke. It's not easy. It's hard. We're called to parent like God. And, and there's some ways in which we just can't do that. Because, first of all, we're not omniscient. We're, we're not omnipresent. We're not everywhere at the same time. We don't have all the power of the universe at our disposal. We're not omnipotent. We're not perfect. 
And what does God call us to do with our kids, though? He calls us to be just and loving and truthful and merciful and patient. And then he says to us this, New Hope. He says, when you have failed, when you have failed, even in your failures, you can go to your children and confess. Confess your harsh words towards them. Confess your impatience and your unfairness. And in doing so, you're actually modeling the gospel. You're saying to them, listen, I need your forgiveness. I need God's forgiveness. Will you forgive me, son? Will you forgive me? And together, let's seek forgiveness from God. When we fail to do that, I believe that we're, again, provoking our children to anger. When they see us speaking words to them that we shouldn't, doing things we shouldn't, but we're never willing to humble ourselves and go to them and say, son, I'm sorry. Son, forgive me. I need your forgiveness. They look at that and they say, man, there's hypocrisy here. My dad's always telling me I need forgiveness. He seems to not need any. Let's go to our children and model the gospel by humbling ourselves in a sense, submitting ourselves by saying, forgive me. I failed you in this area. God has forgiven me. Will you forgive me as well? We're called to raise our kids, but we're not called to do it alone. So New Hope, I want to just encourage you with this as I close. We're a community, so let's raise our kids as a community. Let's help each other. Let's pray for one another. Let's encourage one another. And one of the ways we can do that is through this summer seminar that's coming up. I think it's one of the ways that we can be equipped together to live out this mission. We've been given a mission as a church that, that, that reaches out to the entire world, but it starts right in our own homes. It starts right in our own living rooms. It starts with the ways that we speak the gospel and model the gospel to our own children. We've been given a new identity in Christ, and that means that we don't need to find our identity in our parenting. We don't need to live for the success of our kids. Our kids can fail miserably, and our identity is secure in Christ. If we place all of our hope for approval and satisfaction in our children, then when they fail, what's going to happen? We're going to be crushed. If they reject us, what are we going to do? We're going to be crushed. But if our identity is in Christ, as Ephesians tells us it is, by faith, then we can seek the good of our kids and not be crushed if they don't live up to our expectations. And the same goes for you as children. If you're looking for approval, ultimately, from your parents, then that's a never-ending cycle. It's not going to go well. But if you find your identity in Jesus, you know that Jesus loves you, that he has approved of you, he has died for you, and he is your king. Now you can submit to your parents. Not ultimately because you want their love or you want their approval. Because you already have Jesus' love and his approval. It's a much better place to work from. It's what God calls us to. I want to invite you to pray with me. Lord, we thank you for entrusting us with the relationships you've given us, whether they're marriage relationships, parent-child relationships, um, uncle and aunt and nephew and niece relationships. These are all a blessing from you. We want to walk wisely in all of those. We pray that you'd give us, the, you'd equip us to do that by your spirit. And where we have failed, we pray that we would keep coming back to you, find grace with you, find forgiveness with you. We thank you for your perfect design, not only for our lives, but for our families as well. In Jesus' name, amen.